It's not an easy passage this morning, at least for me anyway. It's, it's like the illustration from last week. It's, uh, to some, it's a, it's a pool of shallow. You've been diving in, uh, to the, in the shallow end, and then you go on the other side, and it gets very deep. And uh, there's a lot of things going on here. As a matter of fact, verses 1 through 18 is called a prologue, or the introduction to the book, to the Gospel of John. In, it, in an introduction, you know what that's for. It introduces the reader to the topic or the subject. In John, John's case, this gospel's case, it is the person and work of Jesus Christ. John specifically wants to get the reader to believe that Jesus is the Christ. So it's very evangelistic, yet it's very rich in theology. And as we saw last week, we see those two things blended together we're going to see it again this morning, blended together. John immediately jumps out the gate, as we learned last week, just dives right in. Forget the shallow end, it seems like it goes around to the deep end, just dives in that 10 feet of water. And uh, so we saw that in verses 1 through 5. And he established in the first five verses we learned last week that Jesus Christ is co-equal with God, that he is God, he's co-creator with God, that he is the source of all of life, spiritual physical, all of life, and that he is the light. And this latter one we're going to pick up this morning with he is the light of men. He is the light of men. So let's stand together and we will read verses 6 through 13 this morning. Verses 6 through 13. And John actually introduces another person in verse 6. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. That is not the writer of the gospel, that would be John the Baptist, two different people. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, verse 11, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of men, but of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we approach you in fear and trembling yet simultaneously with great joy and great love. We come to our Heavenly Father, who because of Christ we don't have the tremble out of fear of punishment, because Christ bore that himself on our behalf. But we come with that awe and respect before the Creator himself, the Almighty, the Holy, Holy holy. This is who we worship. We worship the God of the scriptures, the God who created this universe. Not an image. Not an image created by man, but the God who created man in his own image. So God, bless our time together. Renew our minds. Stir our hearts to act upon what our minds hear this morning. Help us to be faithful and true testimonies to the gospel as John the Baptist was. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen and amen. 
Our outline is going to be quite simple this morning. There's just three parts to it. Verses 6, 7, and 8 is an introduction of John the Baptist. He introduces us to John the Baptist. Number two, he's going to say in verses 9, 10, 11, that the world did not know him and his people rejected him. The world did not know him, but not only that, his own, Israel, rejected him. And number three, yet some receive him. Yet some receive him. Verses 12 and 13. First, I want us to look at John the Baptist. Now, you think about it for a minute, and you look at the other Gospels, all four Gospel writers talk about John the Baptist. Talk about John. Immediately after verse 5, we talked about the light shines in the darkness. He goes right to John the Baptist as a witness to that light. And John's not the only one. All four Gospel writers mention John the Baptist, which tells us how important John the Baptist is to them and the telling of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Just how important he is in, as, in identifying Jesus as the Christ. Not one of them leapfrogs over John the Baptist. They all go there. They believe that they could not give an adequate explanation of the person and work of Christ. Matter of fact, let me quote this. The gospel writers, what commentator wrote, believe that they could not give an adequate explanation of the person and work of Christ without the mentioning of John the Baptist. End of quote. And why does he mention him? Look at verse 7. He came as a witness to testify about the light purpose statement so that all might believe through him. God sent John the Baptist so that all might believe through him that Jesus is what? Who? The light. And as a matter of fact, John still lives today in and through the scriptures, so to speak. So he's still a witness. Amen? Okay? That Jesus is the Christ. It's kind of like... Whenever the head of state is scheduled to appear at a meeting or a conference or some kind of something like that, uh, the head of state enters a room, he or she is preceded by fanfare designed that way to prepare the people for the coming of the king or even like a president of the United States will be preceded by a marine trumpeters and a band playing hail to the chief. This is a standard protocol. And because of that, we should not be surprised that God sent John the Baptist as part of the protocol for the entrance of the king into his creation. So, so you see the, the purpose and the intent of John the Baptist on front, that he was the herald of Jesus Christ into this world. He announced the king and alerted the people of his entrance into his world, this world. But I want to, we're going to be looking at John the Baptist later on because he's mentioned often in the first three chapters, by the way. The next time he's going to be mentioned is going to be in verse 15. John testified about him and cried out. We're going to see later on in chapter 1 that he's mentioned in verses 19 through at least 34 or 35. He's going to be mentioned again later on in chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. So John the Baptist is mentioned a lot by John the Apostle in his gospel here. So before we get into what the light means, what that, what that specifically means according to John, I, I want us to park for a moment and demand John the Baptist, and I want to highlight a particular characteristic of his that I think is vitally important for us today, and it seems to often be missing in the church and God's people. So first look at verses, verse 15 of chapter 1. Listen to this. John testified about him and cried out, saying, 
This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a what? Higher rank than I. A higher rank than I. For he existed before me. Physically, he did not exist before Christ. Okay? Excuse me, I got that backwards, didn't I? Yeah. (laughs) Physically, Jesus did not exist before John the Baptist. But John is recognizing this Jesus, who is the Christ, is eternal and lived well before me, before the foundation of the world back in Genesis 1, in the beginning. But I want you, I really want us to notice higher rank than I. It's repeated again in verse 30. This is he on behalf of whom I said after he comes, a man who has a higher rank than I am, he existed before me. He says it again. So automatically, this John the Baptist recognizes that Jesus has a higher rank than I. John the Baptist had a very high rank. He's like the second Elijah. He's an Old Testament prophet, the last of the Old Testament prophets that introduced Christ to the world. Go back to verse 27. Let's look at this attitude of John the Baptist. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am what? Not worthy to untie. You know what happens here in verse 35 and 36. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, behold, the Lamb of God. Then you got verse 37. Look at the response of those two disciples. They started following Jesus. So Jesus started taking disciples away from John the Baptist. What would a man do today? Pride would creep in. He'd get all flustered that he's losing people. But in disciple-making, they're really never ours to begin with, are they? The disciple always belongs to the king. And we are merely privileged to be a means by which that disciple grows in Christ. But he always belongs to Christ. Go to chapter 3, if you will, for a moment. As we reflect upon this humble, submissive attitude of John the Baptist, because it continues on. Chapter, chapter 3, verse 22, after these sayings, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing nearby because there was much water there, and people were coming and were being baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. John adds that statement. Verse 25, therefore there arose a discussion among part of the John's disciples about, with a Jew about purification. Verse 28, you yourselves are my witnesses that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. Verse 29, he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. John the Baptist was losing disciples over to Jesus, and yet John was saying, my, full, my joy couldn't be any fuller. I'm full now. Notice verse 30. This is the attitude. This is what I want to get at. He must increase. That is Christ. This Jesus must increase in your eyes as the Messiah as the king, while I must, what? Decrease. That should be the attitude of every servant in the body of Christ, every Christian, every pastor, every Sunday school teacher. Right? 
Oh, if we could just have that attitude of John the Baptist. Man, if that, if every minister, everyone who exercised their spiritual gifts in our loving others or loving one another, isn't that what it's all about, exalting Christ? That's what John the Baptist is doing. Though I am gifted, though I am called, I am the forerunner, I am the great herald that proclaims that I am the last of the Old Testament prophets and my responsibility is to proclaim Christ. Look at the attitude in which he did it. With great humility. What a perspective. What a perspective. He knew he was equipped for one reason, one purpose, and that is to exalt Christ. Beloved, you're equipped to exalt Christ. We're not equipped to grow the church, but to exalt Christ. And when Christ is exalted, he says, I will build my church. Right? A lot of churches are about church, but how many churches are about Christ? A lot of churches are about doing ministry, but how many churches are about exalting Christ? A lot of churches are in competition with one another. How many churches would say, we must decrease while he increases? Attitude, attitude, attitude. What a beautiful attitude of John the Baptist. What an example to all of us and the joy he got from that. I'd like to give a more specific example. I had seen and heard often when someone is led to the Lord, the person who led that person to the Lord gets a pat on the back. It's like, oh, that wonderful person, he led that person to the Lord. That does not exalt Christ. A person is a servant doing what he's called to do. When someone is led to the Lord, when there's someone who's born again, Christ should be exalted. Why? Because we're going to learn, because it's a work of God, not a work of man. Verse 13, listen to this. Chapter 1, the last verse of our text this morning. Who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. You must be born again. Who does that? It's a work of God. So, having said that, I'm going to give you a little, a little glimpse into what's coming up in these passages later on in the weeks ahead as we, as we go through the Gospel of John. I just wanted to highlight that, that attitude of John the Baptist because I thought it was so important for us today. You know, a lot of churches tout their various ministries, how many they have or how big they are. Does size matter to God? No. No. It doesn't. You know, Christ's focus is not the breadth as it is the depth of his people. His focus is both. He, but he wants our focus to be the depth. Because he says, I'll take care of the breadth. I'll take care of the size. You, you, you start building that foundation of depth. The stronger your foundation, the more of a building you can hold up on top of yourselves. The more people you can handle. Right? That's why you see today a lot of churches that are a mile wide and an inch deep. I need not talk about that anymore. Let's go on. Let's go back to our text in chapter 1. Just wanted to kind of spend a couple of minutes looking at that attitude of John the Baptist. We'll look at it further in the weeks ahead as we reach those uh, passages of Scripture. Back to the light. The light simply is this. That which enables men to recognize the purpose of God and life in this world. 
and that light is Christ himself. Okay? That is, in a sense, that when one gazes at Christ, they're gazing at God the Father. Okay? When, when, when they hear Christ speak, they're hearing the voice of the Father. When they saw his works, that is, Christ's works, they saw the power of the Father, the power of God. When they saw him die, when they saw him rise from the dead, the purpose of God. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature. So, so Christ is the light. He is the one that shines. He shines forth the Father. He shines forth life. That means He is the source of life, but it also means He's the source of truth. He's the source of life itself, physical and spiritual. And he's also the source of truth physical and spiritual, of all truth. Jesus Christ, in other words, is the purest and truest revelation of God the Father. He is the light. There's none like him. And that's what John is teaching us. It's what he wants us to know. There's no other like him. Of the millions and millions and millions of people who lived before him, and even the billions after him, of, of the billions of people from Adam and Eve to the end of time that ever populated this planet, there's only one person who truly is the Son of God and is Jesus Christ. He fits the bill. It's him. There's been a lot of fakes before him. There's a lot of fakes after him. There's fakes today in our own world, in our own generation. But there's only one. And it's the one that the writer of the gospel of John wants us to know. It's the Christ. Let me illustrate this, or at least try to. Today we live in well-lit areas. Think about it at nighttime. You know, you, you, you have street lights. You got floodlights on your house, right? And they pierce through the darkness, correct? Okay, so like spattered pieces of light. Getting a, have you ever been in a plane late at night? And flown over like a big city like New York City or just some big city. And you look down and you see these spots of light. And they represent these towns or sometimes these big cities. You, you, you've seen that. You've seen it. You've seen it in urban areas. You've seen it from the sky. And, and things that are typically hidden are, 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 not, are now more readily seen. You see patches of light at nighttime. Across the horizon, these little towns and little locations. But then God created a sun. And when it comes up, there's no longer any patches. Everything's exposed. You see, when man creates light for the night, he can only expose a little bit. They're in patches. But the light that God created is sun. When it comes up every morning, it exposes everything. Even on a cloudy day, you can still see. You see, this illustrates the profound truth about Christ. There are no patches with him. When John talks about Jesus as a light. It's not Jesus as a flashlight in my room at night. It's not that Jesus is the floodlights on my house so I can see around a little bit. It's not that he is the light of New York City. He is compared to the sun. He exposes everything. There are no patches with Christ. He's not a patch of light. He is the light. 
John says in 1 John 1, 5, God is the light in him. There is no darkness at all. Let me also read Revelation chapter 21, verse 22 and following. Listen to these words. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it. Why? For the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, that is the Lamb's light. He is the light. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no light, John brackets. Its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations unto it, that is the temple where the Lamb resides. And nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. But I love John's depiction of the Lamb of God being light, and he is the one that's going to light up everything to the point there'll be no need for a sun or moon or so. Isn't that unbelievable? But yet believable, because God said it. The glory of heaven. See, what John wants us to understand and grasp is that Jesus is the purest revelation, the truest revelation, manifestation of God himself. God's purpose, God's person, and God's work. Let's go to the second point in our outline. The second point, and that is the world did not know him, and his own rejected him. The world did not know him, and his own rejected him. Look at verse 9. There was a true light which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. There you go. Not only that, Verse 11, and he came to his own, to Israel, and those who were his own did not receive him. A double whammy here, okay? Double whammy. It's kind of like there's a twofold response. Here's John witnessing, preparing for the coming of the forerunner of Christ. Here comes Christ as the light as he was introduced by John the Baptist, and yet the world did not know him, and his own rejected him. Let's look at this a little bit further, 9, 10, and 11. Let's just dive in a little bit more. Let's look at verse 9. Verse 9 can be rendered. This might be a little note in your Bible here for verse 9. And there was a true light which enlightens every person coming into the world. In other words, everyone has been enlightened a little bit. Okay? Everyone has. There's an amount of understanding and truth that has been before them. Okay, and they've been given that truth. And my parallel to this would be Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Everybody is given general revelation, general truth, general light. That there is a God, he's created us. The problem is we rejected that light. So here you come special revelation or the special light, the Lamb of God. The, 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 the perfect revelation and manifestation of God himself, he comes on the scene and they reject him as well. Well, no wonder. And I've read this before, but I'm going to read it again because I think it's so pertinent to where we're at in our culture today. For the wrath of God revealed, this is Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God revealed from heaven, against all, revealed from heaven, that is that little bit of light, which every person, every lost person has a little bit of light given to them. 
All humanity has some light, some understanding that there's a creator, and that comes from the creation. Everybody in their own conscience has this idea of a right and wrong, however they may define it, and it's very perverted because of the fall. They still have a conscience that says right and wrong. The problem is we have that conscience, we leave God, and we develop our own system of right and wrong, but the system still kind of is still there. But that's light in that sense. There's this general understanding and knowledge and truth about God. We see it in creation. We see it in our conscience. Look at verse 18. For the wrath of God revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. They suppress the light. They suppress it in unrighteousness. Why? Because that which is known about God is evident within them. There's light right there for every human being. Everyone is born with an element or an amount of light there, understanding that there is a creator. But what we do as sinners in our darkness is we suppress it to the point of he's gone. No, I don't believe that anymore. I can look at the mountains and the ocean. I can see it through the telescope and see the, the stars, and I believe there's a black hole from which everything came. That just this big explosion in the universe and things just kind of fell together and evolved over a long period of time, over millions and millions and millions of years. It takes more faith to believe that than that there's a personal creator who created everything by design. But yet, that is the power of sin. That is the power of darkness. It's deceitful. It's tricky. To where men follow in it and are blinded by the darkness. So when they see the, the truth, when they see light, they don't recognize it as light. And they walk away from it. Man wants to create his own light. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. How do you deal with that? It's that guy who recently passed away, Hawkins. Supposed to be this brainiac or the, yeah. Here's the word of God that says this. You look at the universe through the telescope. You look with the naked eye, this life, okay, or the microscope. Or telescope, it doesn't matter. And you see these things and you're, you're witnessing what? The Bible says you are witnessing the evidence of the invisible attributes of God, His eternal power and divine nature. And He says they've been clearly seen, being understood through that which has been what? Made, creation. So that that gentleman is without excuse before a holy God. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. And so we see the rest of the story, God gives them over. So I just wanted to say in that sense, this is number, verse 9 indicates that Jesus being the source of life, being the creator himself, co-creator with the Father, he, 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 is, he is initially in creation, has given humanity some light. So they would know that there is a creator. And then, and then the special revelation comes, the Son of God. Because they rejected the first general revelation, creation, they're going to reject the sun. See, that's what happens when men live in darkness. They can't what? See. They can't see. They can't see. That's the power of sin. You see, you see it's not just the world's in darkness. I'm in darkness. My heart is darkened. That is the sinfulness of sin. 
That's how bad off humanity is. So we see that in verse 9. Let's go to verse 10. I want you to notice the trifold use of the word world here. It's used three times. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. In other words, he was in the world. That is Christ. The light was in the world. Now, the world there means the created world. Okay? But you're going to notice it's going to change. And the world was made through him. So that's how you know the first two uses of the word world is in reference to the created world. The creator came down to be in his world that he created. Okay? He was in the world. That is, the light was in the world, and the world was made through him. But then you have the third usage of the word world in this one verse, and the world did not know him. He's not talking about the created world. He's talking about people, and more specifically, unbelievers, the unregenerate, the lost, those who rejected him. Obviously, there's people in the world that believe in Christ, right? He's not referring to them. He's not talking about universal damnation, nor is he talking about universal salvation. You could say in the world in general did not know him, but I believe that is the world. I believe the world is in reference to those people who love the world more than they love God. And then verse 11, which I consider one of the most saddest verses of all of Scripture. And he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Wow. His own people, Israel, Israelites, when the light of the world came into his own, they received him not. This is not a mere problem of recognition. It's a problem of desire. When the world rejects the light, it willfully does so. It's not because of a lack of light. It's not due to a lack of evidence. It's because of the will does not want it. Man, it is darkened and perverted by sin, though he sees, does not want. How can this be? How can, how can this be? How can 10 and 11 be this way? How can the world reject its creator and Israel, its own Messiah? How can this be? How can neither welcome him? Turn with me to chapter 3. Let's answer that question. It's begged to be answered. We need to answer it with Scripture. 19 and 20. You're very familiar with verse 16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 17. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Now, if you understand the broader context, the world to Nicodemus, who he is still talking to, would mean Jew and Gentile. Not universal salvation, okay? He's saying because Christ came for everybody, whether you're Jew or Gentile, okay? You get the picture. Every, okay. Look at verse 18. He who believes in him is not judged. Amen, because they're saved. They, they believe. They, they're trust, they trust Christ. The, he who does not believe has been what? You're judged already as a condemned sinner going to hell. Notice that the light that is Christ himself is the pivotal point. No wonder he came out and said, I've come to divide families. Mothers from daughters, fathers and sons, friends and neighbors. 
Because when I call someone to follow me, when I call someone to be my disciple, when I save, I begin to change and begin to look different in other people. It begins to polarize other relationships in that person's life. Because those who desire to be godly will suffer. Because the what? We're going to read it. Darkness doesn't like light. Let's look at this. Verse 19, this is the judgment that light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light. Listen to that in verse 19. Men love darkness rather than the light. So they run away from the light. They don't love the darkness in and of itself because it's dark. They love the darkness because of what it does. What does darkness do? It hides. That's what darkness does. It hides. It keeps things concealed. That makes me comfortable. I don't want what I do to be exposed. I don't even want the good things that I do to be exposed as being not good before a holy God. So remember this based on that. What is repentance? It's not just turning from sin, but it's also turning from the good things you have done, from relying on the good things you have done. Remember that? So when a sinner comes to Christ and he repents, yes, he repents of his sins, but he also repents from relying upon all the good things he has done. He lets them go. He doesn't rely on even the goodest of the good he has done to be just before a holy God. He solely trusts in Jesus. You see that? So repentance is, I desire to repent to turn away from sin, but I also desire to, to, turn, to no longer depend on all those good things I've done to be in the presence of God. I've got to trust in the blood and the righteousness of Christ. Period. Repentance includes both, the bad and relying upon the good. Wow. This is the judgment. Life has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil, and they don't want them exposed. They don't want them exposed. doesn't mean they love darkness for its own sake, but because of what it does, it hides. It, it, he desires for sin to be undisturbed. Don't we love for our sin to be left alone and undisturbed? But Christ came in to stir it up. Matter of fact, Paul argues he gave the law to stir up our sin. Christ came into the world as a light to stir up our sin so that we would recognize it. And, and it appoints to the need that we have, that we need him. He didn't stir it up just to be ugly, just to be mean. He stirred it up because if our eyes are open to our own sinfulness, that would lead to us running to the light because the light is the answer to our sin problem. So it not only exposes sin, he wants to deal with my sin. I think that's one reason why when you see somebody sin, they either run away from God or they run to God. The child of God in their sin runs back to God. They repent. But an unbeliever runs away from God. Judas ran away. Peter came back. Christ exposes our deeds as evil. Not being wrought in God. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested of having been what? Brought in God. Wrought in God, excuse me. 
coming from God. I want my deeds to come from him. I want my deeds to come from being with Christ. I want my deeds, my good deeds, to be an overflow of the inflow of Christ. You see that? I want my deeds to be a result of having spent time with Jesus. A lot of people have good works, beloved. A lot of people have good, good, good works. But they're not an overflow of a relationship with Christ. It's just merely their own good goodness. It's their own good works. But as Christians, as followers of Christ, we distinguish and know the difference between those works and the works wrought of God. The works wrought of God come from a relationship with him, comes from spending time with him, comes from the gifts he's given us to do good works. And we know the Father has works for us to do. We know that because of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. He has given us good works to do, but they come from him. The result of being and spending time with him. Men run away. They ran away from Christ. They're going to run away from Christ in chapter 6, by the way. That's why men run away from the Word of God. That's why men and women gather teachers who will tickle their ears, who will give them what they want to hear instead of what they need to hear. That's why we want preachers that will make us comfortable with our lifestyles, make me feel good as a person. But that is not the purpose of preaching. That is not the purpose of biblical teaching or biblical exposition. Because the Christ of the word will come into your life and make you uncomfortable, but because he loves you. You see, we've lost this concept of a tough love. You see, God is both tough and tender. But we have kind of divorced the two, so to speak. Forgive my language, but we've separated the two and we've taken the tough love and kind of thrown it over here where God is just someone to be cuddled up to. He's my best friend. You know, I can... I, you know, he's my lovey-dovey. And we romanticize Christ. No, he is holy. He is king of kings and lord of lords. He comes into our lives to disturb them because we're sinners. But he disturbs them to get our attention so that we will run to him. The light first exposes my sin. But the light says, come to me because I can cover your sin. That's why he is the light of the world. Third, finally, look at verse 12 and 13. Look at 12 and 13. After 10 and 11, that the world does not know him and his own reject him. Verse 12, but contrary, like the contrast there with the word but, B-U-T. Verse 12, as many as received him. Yet there's going to be people from amongst Gentiles and Jews. There's going to be remnants of people that still believe and receive. That's the church. Today, that's the church. To them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. I want you to notice the word received him in verse 12. I said the verb is an active voice. That means the, the subject is actually doing the action. When you're receiving, you're doing something. It's an activity. It's an action. But then after you read verse 12, in light of 10 and 11, you scratch your head and say, how could this be? How could verse 12 be true? If we're in darkness and darkness responds and reacts this way to the light, how in the world do some believe? How can it be? 
How could verse 12 be true? Can people in darkness, how could they see? How could a person in, in a dark room without any light bulbs or any switches or any electricity, how can they see? Verse 13, who were born. I want you to note something here. I'm going to stop right there. Listen, I want you to look at me. The word born is in a passive voice. That simply means in the Greek that somebody's doing something to the subject. We're answering the question how verse 12 can be true. How can one actively receive him? How can they actively believe and get saved? Well, verse 13 must take place. Who were born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh. That is not talking about a physical birth. John is emphasizing, I'm not talking physically, I'm talking spiritually. He's setting us up for chapter 3, by the way. With Nicodemus, you must be what? Born again. There must be a spiritual rebirth in order for you to see in the darkness that you embrace the light, Jesus Christ. That's how verse 12 becomes a reality. In other words, verse 12, those who receive and believe are not, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. You do not will your way to the Father. You do not will your way to the Savior. But of God. Brothers, i got to proclaim it whether people like it today or not. In our independent society we live in, we love freedom, freedom, freedom. But the truth of the Word of God say that we are bound, shackled to sin. And we are shackled to darkness. And the only way out is by the mercy and the grace of God, thus saith the Lord. And that's not very popular. Because I want to know that I have something to do with my salvation. But as soon as I have something to do with my salvation, I've got something to boast about. And the Word of God says, you've got nothing to boast of. Zero. It also teaches me that it's a whole lot more to being saved than just an intellectual understanding. Something here in my desire, something here has got to change. And I know a leopard, this leopard could not change his own spots. It's the Old Testament analogy. So someone had to change my heart. And that's why Paul comes along in Colossians and other books and says, you're a new creature in Christ. Did you make yourself a new creature? God made you a new creature. The gospel's humbling. So how does verse 12 take place in the context of 10 and 11? God. Look at the last three words of verse 13. But of God. In the same word there, born, in verse 13, is the same Greek word he uses in chapter 3 when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And so John in his introduction, you know an introduction does, and I'm wrapping it up here, in an introduction has pieces that the main body has. He's just setting us up for it. And that's a big piece right there. You must be born again. And so this is why, one reason of many of how you've got the basic gospel, but then you've got theology woven into it. Right? So, Sometimes you're reading through the Gospel of John and you're treading on some really, you know, a foot or two a pool. And all of a sudden, John says, let's get into the six-foot section for a minute. And let's get back at the ten-foot, and let's go back to the two or three feet. 
Because doctrine's important. Doctrine's important. And we need to know the light of God's word. We need to know the light of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord God, this is your time, this is your word, and we are your people, the sheep of your pasture. And Father, we know over and over and over and over again the world's telling us one thing, and even a lot of those things of the world have kept in the church, so we've got churches telling us other things. But we want to have ears to hear and eyes to see your word. We always want to be brought back to the foot of the cross, the feet of the Savior, and to bow before him as King of kings and Lord of lords. And, oh, God, I pray that he who has begun a good work in us will continue it until the day of Jesus Christ. God is your children. We never let us go. There are times we feel as David that the Holy Spirit has been taken away from us. But that just means there's sin in our lives. And you don't call us when we're backslidden to rededicate. You call us to repent. That is your answer. So, God, I pray right now if there's anyone in this room it feels like they have just fallen away or felt like they have they've walked away from you, that, God, you would grant them and bring them to repentance. The problem is not with you, God. The problem is with me. It's with us. We are feeble and frail children, but you are a tough and tender Savior. And, God, you are light. Jesus, you are the light of the world. And, Father, when, you're, when the light of Christ shines in us and exposes things that you don't like, things and lifestyles that don't measure up to your word, that God, instead of running away to hide, we would run to you. Because we know not only are you tough, but you are tender. You're merciful. You love us. You're the Savior. Oh, God, we have all been prodigals in our journey on this earth. And as prodigal sons and daughters, when those times happen in our lives, you call us to run home to our loving Father. I pray if anyone in this room has found themselves in that situation, they would just run headlong back to Christ. And they would come and tell one of the under-shepherds of their journey and the joy of being back under the headship of Christ again, the one who died for them. Father, we love you. We thank you for this time together. Thank you for the wonderful words of life. Thank you most of all for the light of this world, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name, in his name only, amen.